All right, y'all, we are back for another episode. I'm really excited because this topic comes up all the time, co-occurring ADHD with autism. And so I have Dr. Carrie Jackson here today. She is a licensed psychologist like I am, but her specialty is in ADHD. And so it's interesting. We have this trading of specialties because I feel like being in our field, we have to know about the other one. She primarily focuses on ADHD. I primarily focus on autism, but ADHD comes into my practice. I know she tests for autism and does evaluations and works with autistic individuals as well. So just a big neurodiversity umbrella. And so I thought it'd be fun today to have her on the podcast and we can talk more about that co-occurring diagnosis with autism Or also this idea of how do you know when it's ADHD versus autism or both of them together? We'll also, towards the end of the episode, dive into more intervention-based approaches and have some good tips and takeaways and recommendations for y'all. Welcome to a parenting space actually designed for you, where you can get answers about navigating a life that includes autism. I'm Dr. Tay, a licensed child psychologist and parental coach specializing in neurodivergent affirming care. I have supported hundreds of autistic children and their families and have been in the autism field for over a decade. And I know firsthand the impact autism can have. I was 12 years old when my little brother was diagnosed and my family had to learn how to navigate the autism journey. It wasn't always easy. Two decades later, I now create resources and services I wish my family had, including this podcast. And I developed the whole family approach. On this podcast, of course, we will talk about autism, but we will also talk about your personal growth and well being as a parent, supporting your non autistic children, and sharing personal stories of other families so you know you're not alone. Quick disclaimer before we jump into today's episode. Anything shared on this podcast should not be considered clinical advice, and you should consult with your team of medical, mental health, and developmental providers if you need support. So Carrie, welcome. It is so exciting to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me. You are exactly right that there is such an overlap between autism and ADHD. And even though I specialize in ADHD, I get so many questions from parents where they're like, how do I know if this is autism or is this ADHD? Or maybe they have both diagnoses. So Really glad that we did have this conversation. Absolutely. So before we fully dive in, tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get into this field? How did you end up specializing in neurodevelopmental (laughs) disorders? So I am a child psychologist, which means that I went to graduate school and I decided to specialize in child psychology just because it's the field I was always drawn into for helping other kids. And with ADHD in particular, it happened more randomly, where I started working actually with parents. So parents of kids with challenging behaviors, some of it was autism, some of it was ADHD, some of it was just other challenging behaviors. And from that, I found, oh, I really love working with parents of kids with ADHD, because you can make such an impact on your child's life when you learn specialized parenting skills. And so that's one of my favorite things to do. I also like to support parents of kids with ADHD because I have ADHD myself. And so for me, it's two in one. I love to support parents who are struggling with raising their child. And then also for me to be able to support kids where I was there once too. It's really nice to be able to do both. That's awesome. I love that. That personal connection, I feel like 
fuels many psychologists. So I don't know if you know this, but I have a brother 10 years younger than me who was diagnosed with autism. I've seen it on your some of your posts. And I think having a personal connection, it definitely makes it so you can really understand what people are going through. I think there's great psychologists that specialize in autism and ADHD who may not have that personal connection. But sometimes I'm like, I can really understand what you're going through right now. I love that you share openly about your ADHD because I also think it helps to destigmatize it. You're a highly successful individual and professional, and you have ADHD, and it's about learning how to navigate that. Yeah, I think that's important. And actually, it took me a while to get to the point of sharing it just because I was actually worried about the stigma as well, too, like what people might say or what they might think. And especially because some of the things they're even saying where people are like, but you seem like you've got it all together. You seem like you're so successful. There's no way you have ADHD. I was honestly so worried about that, that I didn't want to share it, but I'm glad that I did. And now it just feels like a normal thing to share. That's beautiful. And I think that's the thing. We are in this field and we talk about destigmatizing and it's also hard when it's a personal experience. I think Mm -hmm. even with my brother, I didn't really share for a while. And the reasoning was a little different. I felt like it was his story and not my story, but I still think there's these similar aspects. And I think when we can be our truest selves, especially on social media, it creates so much more impact. And I love that about your social media, that transparency and balancing it with education. So actually real quick, how did you start sharing on social media? Cause we connected through Instagram. <laughs> Being bored during the pandemic, honestly, I was bored during the pandemic. That's when we started to see a lot of TikTok, a lot of Instagram. And I was starting to see all these accounts on Instagram, really sharing information that I would say is not accurate about mental health. And a lot of the times it was coming from people who weren't necessarily licensed mental health providers and they were other people, which I think is huge to have that voice as well. But I was like, "Mm, I think there are some things that maybe some mental health professionals should be sharing. But I think that a lot of the times as mental health professionals, we're told don't be on social media. But I really think it's so important for parents to be able to access information that is accurate about mental health, we know how long wait lists are. So you really want people to be able to access it where they can. And so for me, I was like, let me start doing this and sharing some of this information and then just kept doing it several years later. So yeah, here we are. (laughs) It is really fascinating. Our field still hasn't caught up with social media. And I, I get comments from therapists or even other psychologists, they have so much discomfort about how I show up and share. And I'm like, I understand that we're breaking status quo in that regard, but I think you're exactly right. Why wouldn't we make the information that we actually know both from research and our clinical experience accessible to families and Yeah, the pandemic was interesting because the surge of talking about mental health, I think, was amazing. And it is hard to know what sources to trust. Exactly. I think that's one of the biggest issues, too. What source do you trust? What is accurate information? And there can also be licensed mental health providers who I would say are not ethically on social media or they're doing things that I would say are not something I would do personally. I think the benefits of being on social media and doing it in a way that feels comfortable for me far outweigh, I guess, some of the downfalls. And that's the thing. We all do it differently when it's a comfort level thing and Mm -hmm. learning how to navigate that. All right. Let's actually talk about ADHD now. Starting off, I'd be 
curious what you feel like are some of the biggest pieces you find differentiate autism from ADHD? I would say one of the biggest pieces is the restricted repetitive patterns of interest that come up with autism are so much different oftentimes than what comes up with ADHD. So I have a lot of parents who they will say, my child can focus on one thing for hours, but then they really struggle with their attention in other areas. And in ADHD, there's something called hyperfocus, where it's like your ability to regulate your attention. It depends on the activity that you're doing. But for autism, some of the interests maybe that we would look for as a psychologist, like assessing for it. They're going to be a bit different in terms of what that interest is. So maybe what the interest actually is or the scope of it. So how intense of an interest is versus something like a child who is able to play a video game for a few hours a day. So that's where I see a lot of differences in particular with that. Have you noticed that difference as well too with the restrictive repetitive patterns of interest? Totally. I think that it's more than just this hyper-focus. It's because it also spreads to other areas too. It's not just they're hyper-focused and then they move on. It's coming up in social interactions and it's repetitive, right? And it's impairing them potentially in many different areas and not just that time that they're sitting down and zoning in on it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I will often give parents examples when I am talking to them about it. And so I'll say like hyper-focus might look like a kid being able to play Legos for three hours a day, even more sometimes, but a restricted repetitive pattern of interest, that might be something like bringing up a really unique interest in every single conversation and it finds its way into there. And oftentimes the interest, they might not be something that all kids will be able to talk about, or maybe even share interests in versus video games are much more normative to have that interest. Yeah. And I think it can go both ways where it might be an interest other same age peers don't have, or sometimes the intensity of it is just so much greater. I think when you start to get into listing details and facts and like a kid recurrently bringing those up, that for me is definitely pinging more towards that autism side. Especially with the facts piece, being able to recall all of these like different facts about something, both of these It can be really hard to tell as a parent. And so that's why I say like always look to a licensed mental health provider who will be able to really give you some of the information on why this may be autism, why it may be ADHD, or why it may be both because there is that overlap, which is tough. Social issues can come up with either diagnosis. And so I think that can be challenging at times for parents to know what is going on with their child. Yeah. And I think in some ways as a parent, you don't need to know which one you're asking about. That's part of our role is really being able to parse things apart and understand what that presentation is. Yeah. You shouldn't feel like you need to be the one diagnosing your child as a parent, because I think that a good evaluator, yes, you can bring up to them. I have concerns about autism, but also potentially ADHD. The evaluator will be able to help you understand what is the correct diagnosis or diagnoses for your child. So let's talk about age of diagnosis, because I often work with really young kids, like toddlers. I'll start seeing kids at 12 to 14 months of age for autism. So some of these little kids that I'm seeing ADHD isn't coming into the picture. So what do you personally as a clinician feel comfortable with in terms of the lowest age limit? 
So for ADHD, I will say therapy-wise outside of ADHD, I'll work with kids down to two also, but for ADHD, thinking about diagnosing, four is the youngest age I would diagnose, and that's what's recommended by the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Pediatrics. I will say it can be difficult to diagnose at that age still because there are some times where it's just not necessarily clear that a child does have ADHD, but if a child is having problems with impulsivity in daycare or preschool or other social events, and the parent is seeing those difficulties too, then I would be able to do an assessment for ADHD potentially. And a lot of the research shows that having that diagnosis at age four, typically those symptoms stay. So they're an accurate diagnosis, which I know somewhere with autism, that early intervention is really important as well. Yeah. I even think about not only intervening, but then also just having the diagnostic clarity that when they start kindergarten, first grade, they're not being labeled as the bad kid who doesn't mm-hmm. listen. Cause I think a lot of times that's what can happen. Oh yeah, absolutely. I have had families I've worked with where having that diagnosis was very important to prevent them from being removed from a preschool or a daycare due to impulsivity issues, which were being interpreted as bad behavior. Absolutely. Also feel comfortable diagnosing at four. I will say I've had a couple kids. It is super, super rare that are like late threes, but they, there's so much impulsivity and hyperactivity Mm -hmm. that it's to the point that there's risk of them hurting themselves that I have made the diagnosis, but that is extremely rare. And so I also, I bring this up because if your child was diagnosed early with autism, you might need to go get another evaluation if you have additional concerns or you feel like your child isn't responding to the treatments being done. Looking at something like co-occurring ADHD can be really, really important. And it's not that your provider missed it. It's that we have this age gap between when autism can be diagnosed and when ADHD can be diagnosed. That's a really important thing to think about too, because a lot of parents, I think once you have a diagnosis or an evaluation, it's like, oh, I don't need to have another one. But especially for concerns around ADHD, I think that's important that you may need to reassess that later, especially if your child was diagnosed very early with autism. Yeah, I think that's definitely important to consider. And ADHD is the most common comorbid diagnosis associated with autism. So it's something I think all parents of kids who are autistic should definitely keep an eye on. So I'm going to actually bring up a topic. We talked about it in DMs about this idea. Do all autistic kids have ADHD or vice versa? What are your thoughts on that? Yes, we did talk about this. So not all autistic kids have ADHD. So you might have seen that on TikTok or on Instagram. There's this idea that Some providers feel like all of these symptoms of autism can also be considered all of these symptoms for ADHD. And so some providers might say it is absolutely impossible to not meet criteria for both. I completely disagree with that. I think that part of it is like my training as a clinician, I am able to parse apart how social difficulties in autism may look different than social difficulties with ADHD. And that restricted repetitive patterns of interest, like we were talking about earlier, I can think of so many kids where they have those restricted repetitive patterns of interest and meet criteria for autism, but do not meet criteria for ADHD at all. And vice versa, where if you have ADHD, you don't absolutely have autism. So 
it's frustrating, honestly, as a provider to see this type of information going around because I think it leads to a lot of confusion for families. It does. It absolutely does. And I know you and I are on the same page with this. And I will say, I probably in some ways, slightly skew the other way of conceptualizing autism. Autism is what we consider very heterogeneous, meaning there's a lot of symptoms that can come into play with the autism phenotype or what's called the mm-hmm. autism profile. And so we will see patterns of inattention and hyperactivity and impulsivity. But the question becomes, do they rise to a level above and beyond autism, because you can have Mm -hmm. that co-occurring aspect without having a co-occurring disorder. And there's been actually a lot of research showing the overdiagnosis of co-occurring disorders with autism. And a lot of it stems from psychiatry with prescribing medications. And I think it's been a cool shift. I don't know if you've seen this, but some psychiatrists I've seen go towards the approach of wait, we can use stimulant medication in just an autistic child. They don't have to have co-occurring ADHD and they've actually seen progress with emotion dysregulation. Interesting. I haven't had that happen, but that's very interesting. So it's good to know and something to look out for. It was actually a provider based out of LA that I had this conversation with. So I'll loop you in. But if the co-occurring diagnosis is needed, absolutely. I just think we have to be cautious about not over labeling and over pathologizing and really making sure we understand those differences. One question you said, because I'm curious to hear, you said you could distinguish social difficulties with ADHD versus autism. What are some of those features you're looking for that you feel like parse them apart? The most common social challenge I see in kids with ADHD is like due to the impulsivity a lot of the time. So Kids with ADHD, they might be like very impulsive in what they're doing. And like, maybe they are like playing with a friend and what they're doing is just pushing the other kid. And they're not seeing the other kid's perspective that they're no longer having fun, but it's really that impulsivity piece where it's like a child with ADHD is having so much fun. They can't stop themselves and they don't even realize they're starting to bother their other friend, but their other friend needs a break. So that is one of the biggest pieces is it's the impulsivity a lot of the times that is driving those perspective taking issues and those issues as far as just being able to interact with others. But I would say in autism, I often see a lot more of the, I don't want to say actual perspective taking issues, because that doesn't sound quite right as far as what I'm trying to portray, but it's perspective taking issues and understanding of social challenges that is different and apart from the impulsivity or the inattention. So Yeah, I hope that makes sense. It does. And I can actually expand upon that a little bit. When I was in grad school, we actually published a paper on this that with ADHD, a lot of times it's the application issue, but the foundational knowledge is there versus with autism, we often see some of those discrepancies in the foundational knowledge and being able to really understand and perspective take versus, and that describes perfectly, I think what you're describing where it's like, Kids with ADHD know what the rules are and know how to follow them, but sometimes their impulsivity takes over and it makes it difficult for them to be able to execute that. When I say that, does that resonate for you? 
Yeah, because a lot of the treatments for autism, they are very skills focused, right? So teaching skills around social skills, for example, versus with ADHD, it's so much more about having them practice skills over and over and over again to really build that muscle memory. Because a lot of the times kids with ADHD, they know exactly what to do in many circumstances, but have trouble doing it when the time comes because of executive dysfunction. Yeah. So- There is research to show that ADHD can actually delay the diagnosis of autism. Is that something you see in your clinical practice? It's interesting because I feel like most of the times when I am seeing kids, I can think of like one or two clients where I have seen this, but a lot of the times I often see kids who are diagnosed with autism prior to being diagnosed with ADHD. So that is interesting, but I can see how ADHD it's considered much more common as far as rates and prevalence go. And so I could see how that could also lead to some misdiagnoses of autism in particular. Is that something that you tend to see in your work? Yeah, it's actually really interesting. So in grad school, I worked in an ADHD lab. And so we're recruiting participants with ADHD, but we would do a thorough comprehensive evaluation. And the investigator's focus was ADHD, but a lot of times we'd end up being in case conceptualization together. And it's like, this is just autism. So I get pulled in quite a lot to do ADOSs and help with that differential. And it was actually surprisingly high, but there's also data separately of my clinical experience to show because it makes sense too, where again, we go back to this hyper-focus example. It could be like, well, they're just hyper-focused, right? That's part of their ADHD. And then we're not doing the deeper dive to realize, oh, this is actually an intense interest when Mm -hmm. it's showing up in these different ways. I think I did also actually see more of that when I was in graduate school and also on my fellowship because I did that in the Midwest versus now I'm located in California. And I think service availability as well for some of these things like evaluations is a lot different in California where I am versus in the Midwest. Waiting lists for autism evaluations were two to three years. It was definitely a big difference. And I would say that makes sense for why that was more prevalent in those states that I worked in. Yeah. I would say now in my current practice, because I'm seeing younger kids, usually neither is diagnosed. Yes. And I'm sure you see that as well. Oh yeah. Especially, I mean, there's definitely a lot of younger kids where it's like the first time with any mental health services. And so they're not going to be coming in with that diagnosis. But yeah, when you see really, really young kids, I know both you and I do, it's definitely much less common, I guess, to come in with any type of diagnosis. Yeah. Anything else before we transition off this diagnosis piece? Anything else that you can think that would be helpful to chat through? I don't think so. Not about diagnoses. Those are, I would say the main ones is just the overlap and symptoms like social difficulties. And then these rigidity, restrictive, repetitive patterns of interest. If you just look at face value of the names, you could see how, oh, it could be either, but a licensed provider is able to really tell you, nope, this piece is more autism. This is ADHD, but it's confusing. It is. It is. I actually thought of another one. And this is different with our specialties is pediatricians diagnosing ADHD. A lot of times they won't diagnose autism. It's pretty rare. But Mm -hmm. what are your thoughts about a parent going to a pediatrician and getting an ADHD diagnosis for their kid? I would say that in most cases, I think it can be incredibly helpful. And most of the times pediatricians, they will use the Vanderbilt screening measure 
as a method to diagnose ADHD, using that in combination with behavioral observations, as well as an interview or listening to the parent, it's a pretty accurate way to get a diagnosis. So there's been research studies looking at with the screening of the Vanderbilt, how accurate is it? Pretty accurate, actually. So I think the sensitivity and specificity, which is basically a measure of accuracy in diagnosis, it's around 86%. In combination with other methods, like ruling out other concerns, I think it can be great. So I would say pediatricians, they also are getting a lot more training in ADHD in particular. And so for many families, I think it can be a great way to get that diagnosis. The only concern I think I have is that more often than not with ADHD, there are comorbid concerns, particularly around learning disorders. And so a pediatrician is not going to be able to diagnose that. And that is something a psychologist would have to diagnose through some testing, but it could be a good first point or a first way in. Yeah. And I think given wait lists and access, it makes so much sense. Even on the autism side, I don't think pediatricians are getting as much education about autism Mm -hmm. compared to ADHD, but I think the more that we can equip pediatricians to be that first line of triage, it becomes so important. What would you say to a parent who their pediatrician's like, no, I don't think your kid has ADHD. Uh, I mean, I have had many families come up to me and tell me that. And I would say, first, did they do any type of assessments or was it just them saying, no, after just seeing them in my office, I really don't think so. If they say no, and they haven't done any assessment, I would ask if they're willing to do a screening with the Vanderbilt, something like that, where you can get an idea If they still say no, honestly, I would look at changing your pediatrician if that is an option for you, because it sounds like they are not willing to explore that further. You can always get a further evaluation through a psychologist, but I know with some insurance plans, you may need a referral from your pediatrician as well, which is why I think really looking at if your pediatrician is a good fit for you, whether they're willing to listen to your concerns or not. There's also some developmental pediatricians, which I'm sure you have probably come into contact with too. And they specialize a lot in neurodevelopmental disorders or behavioral challenges. And so if you have that option in your area, definitely look for those too. Yeah. Yeah. I actually recently just did an episode with two developmental behavioral pediatricians Uh, and we talked through the diagnosis process and how they you know, do a comprehensive evaluation in many ways that we do. It can look a little bit different, but it's so fascinating. We talked about on that episode, which I think is relevant to this too, that sometimes fields are siloed where we don't really communicate with each other very much. And so if you're Mm -hmm. listening and you're wondering what a developmental behavioral pediatrician is, that would be a great episode to go listen to. I think it's, it's unfortunate. It's not available in every city or every hospital because I think it's great. Some of me was like, why some places do I come across developmental behavioral pediatricians more than others? And I'm not going to remember the exact number, but throughout the U.S., there's only like 750 developmental Mm -hmm. behavioral pediatricians. The number is really, really low, which then it makes sense why they're harder to find. Very limited. Yeah. I just thought it'd be helpful to chat through this pediatrician piece. And you and I feel similarly too about Mm -hmm. not being afraid to advocate for your child if you feel you still have concerns. And the other thing I was also thinking about too, is just for parents to be aware of, it's not saying don't go to your pediatrician, but ADHD can look like a lot of different things. And Mm -hmm. so it could be like anxiety is part of the picture. 
Or there's this differential where it's like, well, my kid's not attending. Well, if they're anxious all the time, it's going to be really hard to attend to things. Yep. And I, I have had definitely that experience as well, or with OCD also. So, and I'm sure autism and OCD, there's a lot of confusion a lot of times too. So I'm sure you relate to that. Absolutely. Let's switch gears. Although I think we could keep talking and this is so fun. So intervention approaches for ADHD. After you're diagnosing a child, what are you often recommending? And does that differ if autism is co-occurring with ADHD? Real quick, just a brief interruption, because I want you to know you don't have to navigate this journey alone. If you're in a place where you have concerns about your child's development, you've been on the search for a therapist that provides evidence-informed neurodivergent affirming care, or you're needing more support as a parent, the whole family approach may be a good fit for you. Autism doesn't just impact your child's life, so you deserve care that works for your child and your whole family. Head to the link in the show notes to schedule a complimentary call where we can chat about your unique circumstances. We can help you decide if Dr. Tay concierge clinical care would be a good fit for your family. And if not, we will provide you resources for your next best steps. Yes, definitely differs if autism is co-occurring in the sense of what type of treatment. But I will say throughout both autism and ADHD, one thing that I always recommend parent involvement in the treatment. I think that is huge. And I would say regardless, parents getting some type of support for learning how to best interact with their kids is very, very important. We know that for kids with ADHD, it's actually the most effective treatment is parent-led treatment. That's regardless of if your child is younger or if they are a teenager, there's a huge involvement with the parents. And so I do often recommend that as one of the most important pieces for treatment. With autism, I really like to use a treatment called AIM High, which I think we have talked about in our messages, but it's an individualized mental health intervention for ASD. And you're not treating the actual autism symptoms. You're not trying to get rid of some of the challenges around eye contact, but you are really treating the co-occurring challenges that come up as a result of autism. So that's what I tend to focus on in my treatments and aim high, the, an individualized mental health intervention, it's considered one of the most effective treatments for autism as well. I will say we've chatted about it. I don't know a lot about it, but this is also being in our field. There's so many different interventions. And so I need Mm -hmm. to go do some research. Is it very behaviorally based or what would you say the modality is? Yeah, it's very behaviorally based. And it was actually developed in combination with clinicians, as well as parents, caregivers, and individuals with autism, because I'm sure there is a lot of negative perceptions about ABA in the field of autism. And so this treatment, it was really developed in combination to take what we know are some of the most effective elements of treatments for kids with autism, but then also make it a little bit more parent-focused client-friendly using really the clients and their parents as well. So it's a very helpful intervention. There's been a couple of research studies on it as well, too, as far as randomized control trials, finding that it's considered to be one of the most effective treatments too. So it's just very limited and where providers are trained in it right now. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds very consistent with like neurodivergent affirming care. Like you said, 
It's not about treating the autism. We're not trying to get autism to go away. That's part of who your kid is. And what can happen, especially with co-occurring autism and ADHD, is there can be things that are causing everyday challenges. Again, Mm -hmm. if your kid's being perceived as the bad kid who never listens, that's not good for their mental well-being and giving them the tools and the skills and the support to be able to ultimately be who they are and have more of that, that daily functioning that is going to serve them. Exactly. It can bring up so many challenges in your day-to-day life. And so it's really about supporting kids in those challenges rather than like just treating these symptoms of autism. Yeah. What would you say in terms of neurodiversity within the ADHD community? It's very big in autism, like you were talking about, really autistic adults leading the charge. And obviously ADHD falls under the neurodiversity umbrella, but how much are you hearing about it? How much are you talking about it as a clinician? I talk about it a lot with parents around the educational piece, as well as the kids, because like neurodiversity, it really is just looking at how our brains function different. There's neurodiversity, there's the diversity in our brains and how they function. And so I think it's important a lot of the times for parents and kids to understand that the neurodiversity they're experiencing, it's not their fault. It's not their parents' faults. It's just that their brain is working differently than other kids sometimes. And so I think it's also really important for parents to understand that your child is not doing these things on purpose. It is really their neurodiversity. And it's something I think that helps a lot of parents when they understand neurodiversity rather than just like, this is my child, how they are behaving in this moment. Absolutely. We talk about neurodiversity a lot on this podcast. And what's interesting to think of the behavioral piece, and we don't have to go full in depth here, but what came to mind as you were also talking is then co-occurring ODD, oppositional defiant disorder. And we know there's a high rate with ADHD. We often see it diagnosed in autism, but I also think the more that we understand, at least on the autism side, we really start to understand the function of behaviors Mm -hmm. and also this idea of neurodiversity, I'm starting to see more and more considering emotion dysregulation as part of the presentation. I think there's a high rate of ODD sometimes diagnosed with autism, but I personally have found, I don't always think it's the best conceptualization of what's going on. What are your thoughts more on the ADHD side or even the autism side? Feel free to comment on that. I agree with you. I think that a lot of the times if you're actually looking at what is causing the not listening or not doing the defiance, it's actually not purposeful defiance. So with ADHD, a lot of the times it's like parents will tell their child to do something. And then it's like in one ear out the other, that's actually working memory and ADHD. It's not purposeful defiance. I would say there are times any kid will purposely not listen to their parents. Totally. Um, That is absolutely normal for kids with ADHD and or autism. Some of those executive functioning challenges may come up and it may look like defiance, but really looking at, okay, why is this happening? And also one thing I share with parents is treatment wise, they're very similar, the treatments for ADHD and oppositional defiant disorder. So really learning those specialized skills to support your child's executive functioning and listening will help a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Going back to the intervention-based side, how often are you recommending things like PCIT, parent-child interaction therapy, or cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT for kids with ADHD? I would say very often 
especially for younger kids, parent training like PCAT is one of the most common treatments I will recommend. As kids get older though, so like tweens and teens with ADHD, that's when I might start to recommend other things like CBT focused treatment or parent teen family therapy for executive function deficits. That might be when I start to recommend it. But I would say almost always am I recommending that. And I would say for kids with autism too, there's always that parent focused treatment too. Could you actually comment on, just for parents' knowledge, some of the studies that did study parent training versus medication or the combination? Yeah. So there have been some studies that look at what is most effective for kids with ADHD. And we do know that stimulant medications, they're very effective. The recommendations are actually based on these studies that find that it's most helpful for kids when they're six years and older to have a combination of both medication and behaviorally focused treatment. So there have been studies that look at this question and we find that PCIT, parent training, all of these behavioral treatments are very effective for ADHD, but also it's going to be much more effective when there's also that combination of medication. I think the medication piece is so important too, to talk about. Yeah. We are therapists, but it's like, it comes up and I do recommend getting an evaluation by a psychiatrist or talking to your pediatrician about medication, just because it's an important piece. And so I have some clients where they want to try just behavioral strategies first. Totally okay. We can do that. But sometimes they feel like they've hit a wall and they want to try something else. Absolutely. There is its claimer at the start of this episode saying we're not giving clinical advice. But I definitely think it comes up all the time. And while we can't prescribe at the same point, we're often the ones parents go to like, Hey, should I be considering this? Should I not? And I think it can be a really helpful avenue. I'm sure you're similar in this. And you brought up the controversy of ABA earlier, which Mm -hmm. again, I had a podcast episode breaking all of that down. So if you're listening to this, you're like, what is the controversy? Go back a handful of episodes and it will walk you through all of that. But I think Just like ABA, I love this idea of informed consent. I feel the same about medication where it's like, let me give you all the information as a parent, the pros, the cons, let's chat through it a little bit, but ultimately you have to follow your gut as a parent. And then of course, with medication, there's this additional layer that they need to consult with a prescribing Mm -hmm. provider as well. But I get that same sense for you too, would you say? Oh yeah. I will give parents like what I know about medication. I will refer them to some evidence-based websites about medication, but then I will say, speak to your pediatrician. I'm not able to give you specifics around this medication versus that. What I will say is that we know it is an effective and safe treatment. So both of those are really important. And also with ADHD, we actually know that medicating ADHD and having effective treatment reduces the risk for a lot of challenges like substance use disorders in teenage years. That is often a reason why parents are hesitant to start medication in the first place. Yeah. There's a lot of research on this. And I think being able to go to some of those sources and really understand or talking with a provider about those. Yeah. So helpful. Anything else treatment wise, intervention wise that comes to mind for you before we go into a little bit more about the work you're doing? I was going to say, we've talked about mightier some, which I think is like a fun piece of treatment. So I 
use it in my private practice with kids. And I recommend it as a tool because biofeedback, there is some research suggesting that it is also a helpful treatment for ADHD. My problem with biofeedback types of interventions is that they're often really inaccessible to families and they cost a ton of money. Biofeedback is really just taking information from your body, like heart rate, and then using a skill to see how that affects your heart rate. So with Mightier, it is a game where essentially like a child, they play different apps that are like games you would play on your phone. And it's linked to a heart rate monitor on their wrist. Then what they do is as they're playing in real time, they're able to see as their heart rate gets higher and higher. If it goes into the red zone, the game becomes really, really tough to play. And so kids, what they have to do is they have to pause, look at their heart rate monitor, engage in a coping skill and wait until it goes down and they get points in the game for bringing their heart rate down. So I think that it's a super cool way to teach kids coping skills. And for ADHD, it builds that muscle memory like I was talking about where it's practicing it over and over again. And it does generalize to areas outside of video games in real life. I think it's a fun way to teach kids. It's helpful for autism as well too. Anger, anxiety, it's a great tool to add to your tool belt. Yeah. And we know too, from research, emotion dysregulation is highly, highly co-occurring with autism. Mm -hmm. It is also with ADHD. It is with a lot of different disorders, so to speak. So do you have kids try it in your office is what you do? I do. So actually what I'll often do is I will show it to kids. And at the end of session, I'll often do a parent check-in. And so I'll have kids use Mightier when I'm doing a parent check-in. So it's fun. They get to learn and they, it's a fun game to play where they're still learning a coping skill. And then would you say a lot of your families end up using it at home themselves? Yeah. A lot of the families, they end up liking it so much that they actually want to try it out more at home because the research studies on it show you need three times a week for 20 minutes of using the game for 90 days. And so a lot of families want to actually try it out at home for longer times if their kid likes it. So I think it's a great way to learn some coping skills at home too. Do you happen to know Is there a way for families to be able to preview it? Because I know it comes with, I was asking you questions because I recommended it to one of my families after seeing you talk a lot about it, but it's like a kit you buy Mm -hmm. with a tablet, which I did not realize and a heart rate monitor. Are there ways that families can check it out before they commit to it? Do you know? They have a lot of videos on My Dear's website that I would say are super helpful to see, but then they also have a 30-day refund policy. And so I think that's really helpful because I have a lot of parents where they're like, I don't know if my son or daughter will like this. I'm like, you can try it out. And if they don't like it, you can always return it too within those 30 days. So I think that often helps a lot of families feel better. Awesome. And we'll link that in the show notes and you have actually a discount code for it too. I do. Yeah. We can add that in and I'll send that to you so that if you do want, you'll get to try it out, you'll get 10% off. So perfect. Perfect. Awesome. So talk a little bit now before we wrap up the episode about your services. Obviously, you have your own private practice. Feel free to touch on that. But I also know you've expanded beyond that. So what might be some resources families can connect with you over? So I will start off and say that I have a couple of free resources, which I always love to share with families. And so specifically, if you are a parent of a child or a tween and teen with ADHD, 
I have two free guides for you. And so I will link that in the show notes for you guys as well. So you can start there. But if you're looking for more support, I have a couple of different options. So I do a live group coaching program with parents of kids with ADHD. Sometimes they also have co-occurring challenges like autism as well, too, where you can learn some specialized parenting skills to support your child and having them have the best and most helpful environment. So have a group that I do for parents of younger kids and then one for tweens of teens. Just started mine for my group of younger kids. It's so much fun to do. It's one of my favorite things. Then. I know it's a lot of fun. I also have a course for tweens and teens, which I love because it teaches communication skills to parents of how you can support your tween or teen with ADHD. And then it also gives kids some skills as far as executive functioning. So your child can learn like how to organize themselves for school or how they can prioritize their assignments. Those are my main services that I have. And I'm sure that I'll share with you my website where you can find all of those listed there, but I have a combination of different free resources. And if you want more support, some paid ones as well too. Yeah. And then if you're local to the San Diego, California area, they can come work with you. Yes, exactly. I have a wait list right now, but maybe that will be changing in the future. So course, you're welcome to see if my practice would be a good fit. It's called SoCal Child Psychology. Awesome. Awesome. Well, before we wrap up, anything else coming to mind for you that you want to be sure to share today? Thank you for being a resource to parents. I think that you are such a great resource to parents of kids who are autistic and just spreading this information via social media is super helpful. So thank you for having me on too. I know we've been wanting to connect for a while, so I appreciate it. Well, thank you for being here. And I had so much fun. I feel like We actually covered a lot in this episode today, and it was fun being able to have our brains come together and really have your expertise in ADHD. I will also make sure to link Carrie's social media in the show notes. Go follow her. I even love watching all her stuff and sometimes learn things, and it's so informational. But thank you so much for being here. Yes, thank you for having me. All right, y'all, that is a wrap for today's episode. We will see you back soon. Before we wrap up this episode, for real this time, I wanna share a couple ways you can get even more value and what your next steps could be. First, join the Evolve Facebook group. We do Q&As about the episodes and so much more. I linked that group, my personal social media pages, and any resources I mentioned in this episode in the show notes. So scroll down now and join me online. When you submit questions on any of my pages, your question could be featured on this podcast. How cool is that? I love being able to speak on topics that feel directly relevant to your life. Your questions truly make a difference in the content we create here. One last thing, do your fellow autism parents a favor. Share this episode on your social media and tag me. Autism currently affects one in 36 families in the United States and many more worldwide. So I'm sure there is a parent in your social media followers that could be served by this podcast. Thank you again for being here, and I'm so grateful we shared this time together. Bye, y'all.